Welcome to the Pirate's Eye Podcast, produced by the Seton Hall Alumni Engagement and Philanthropy Department. I'm your host, Bianca Velez, Class of 2010 alumna and Director of Alumni Communication and Digital Engagement here at Seton Hall. Each month, I'll be sitting down with an alumnus to talk about their career, their life journey, and the role that Seton Hall has played in getting them where they are today, or continues to play. In today's episode, I chat with Dr. Catherine Alicia Georges, a class of 1965 graduate of the College of Nursing. Dr. Georges shares with us how her experience at Seton Hall shaped her career and strengthened her commitment to serving her community. Dr. Georges is also Seton Hall's 2020 Most Distinguished Alumna, an award usually given as part of the Seton Hall Many Are One Alumni Awards Gala. And although, unfortunately, we cannot celebrate Dr. Georges in person this year, you can visit www.shu.edu slash one to view and participate in our digital celebration. Here's my interview with Dr. Georges. Dr. Catherine Alicia Georges, thank you so much for joining us on this episode today. It is a pleasure to have you on. This year, you were named Seton Hall's most distinguished alumna because of your professional achievements, your involvement in the Seton Hall community, and exemplifying servant leadership. I want to hear the full story, so let's start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about where you're from and the road that led you to Seton Hall. Well, I was born and raised in St. Thomas, the United States Virgin Islands. I had from kindergarten through high school a Catholic education. I was educated by the Sisters of Charity from Convent Station, New Jersey. They were, there was a lot of rigor, (laughs) high standards, but we prevailed and they made sure that you accomplished what you needed to. I journeyed to Seton Hall because at that time, one of the things that the uh, nuns, the Sisters of Charity, you know, instilled in us is that you needed to continue your Catholic education. So uh, though admitted to a number of Catholic universities and colleges, I chose Seton Hall because it was close to New York, where my, <laughs> where my cousin lived. And because I was not going to Minnesota where my two older sisters were in college in Duluth. And (laughs) I knew it was too cold. And so (laughs) that's how I came to Seton Hall, you know, uh, School of Nursing back in 1961. Wow. So it sounds like you you transitioned from a small town on an island to a big city. Seton Hall at that time, the campus for the College of Nursing was in Newark. Yes. Um, so very close to New York City, like you were aiming for. What was that transition like for you? Well, you know, when one thinks of college, one thinks of, oh, you'll be in a dorm like my sisters were in a dorm. That didn't happen uh, for, for me at Seton Hall because at that time it was predominantly male. And the men had the, the dorms on the campus. And nursing and education and school of law were in Newark. So coming to to the United States, I had to stay with a family that 
the Sisters of Charity have compensation arranged for, for my first, I guess my first year at Seton Hall. I stayed with a, a, a African-American family who really embraced me and, and was assistive. But it was strange, you know, looking at these tall buildings, people hustling and bustling, elevators, you know, just just the, the magnitude was unbelievable coming from a small island surrounded by beaches, blue skies, water. <laughs> it was awesome. It, it just, it, it really knocked you back for a while there, but um, I adjusted, you know, it took a little while, but I adjusted to it. And so what was your experience at Seton Hall like? You chose a nursing career. Why did you choose a nursing career? Well, my, my godmother was a nurse midwife, a registered nurse and a nurse midwife who had been trained by the United States Navy during one of the times they occupied the islands. And, and she, had, she came to the mainland, as we would call it, and got some additional education. I was in awe of this woman. She delivered every, almost everybody I knew <laughs> on the island, all my family members, my friends, their parents. So it was, I wanted to be like her. And she was in our community. She was an exemplar. She was viewed as an outstanding community leader. So I wanted to be like her. So I chose nursing, but I have to tell you that my dad, even though he didn't go to college, um, he was a postmaster, but even he didn't go to college. One of the things he did is that he was an avid reader and he said his daughter's must have a college education. So he insisted that we go to baccalaureate programs. Dr. Georges, you are the most distinguished alumna for 2020. Normally we would be celebrating you in person at our Many Are One Alumni Awards Gala. We can't do that because we're living through a pandemic. And I know you have had a fair share of experience with situations involving high contagion in communities through your career. Can you share a little bit of what those experiences have been like, insights that you have learned that are applicable to what we're living in today's day? Well, I have to tell you that one thing that I have to give Seton Hall credit for is the grounding that we had in public health science and epidemiology that then, you know, gave me the opportunity later on in the, when with the AIDS epidemic and with the TB um, there was an awful TB contagion in, in New York City back in the 60s and early 70s. And so we were, as even though we, I worked for the Visiting Nurse Service of New York, we were the ones who did that contact tracing for the health department. Um, and now we couldn't do anything about HIV because HIV in the 80s, 90s, you, you, nobody would the public health law in New York did not allow you to go after contacts. They did it. It was not done by nurses. But the TB was, and I remember vividly doing the kinds of things that we needed to do to find out who it was, where they were, making sure they got under treatment. And even though people may have, and in those days, they used to quarantine you, just like the quarantining is done now. You were, you, if you were contagious, you stayed home. Oh, wow. And that was what it was. You know, didn't happen with HIV. Didn't doesn't happen with with uh, sexually transmitted diseases, but it did with TB. And so we that that grounding that I had in public health science, you know, and where we use that. But that was back in the '60s before people started 
demanding and saying folks should not be quarantined. But people, because that was so infectious and so contagious, you know, that you had to do something at that point in time. I think the also just understanding disaster-like situations have, have placed us, have placed me and some of my colleagues in a position where we understand about the planning and implementation of programs to mitigate those risk factors and to be assistive in this. We were not prepared in this country. Mm -hmm. We had disseminated, had really destroyed uh, most of our public health structure. I can only talk about New York City, in New York City. So the health department didn't have the, the clout, the, 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 what they should have been doing. We lost track, time was so, of such, was so valuable, we missed it. Right. Now we're trying to backtrack and do contact tracing. But my friend, Dr. Brenda Bennett, who was my classmate at Seton Hall Nursing and who's a physician, we kept saying, but we know how to do that. We learned that in the 60s at Seton Hall. We know <laughs> what it means to contact trace. We worked in a combined agency in Jersey City. Oh wow! It was both the health department and a, and a VNA. So we, we had that background. And so, um, I, I mean, I haven't been out there because I'm one of the vulnerable, vulnerable population. So I've been trying to stay away from anybody who may possibly be, you know, contagious um, because of my my age. And, you know, so I'm one of the ones that say, stay away, stay home, you know, do your work <laughs> from home. But right. I, I think it, um, my I think my education and, and my work experience, you know, have, have me thinking very differently about how the pandemic has uh, been handled. Wow. And so you mentioned being in New York City, which is where you were working at the time that our stay-at-home orders came into place. Tell me, how did you end up in New York City? You moved on from Seton Hall, so you got your bachelor's in nursing. Um, and then what was that trajectory like? I fell in love with community health nursing in Jersey City as part of my um, my senior year experience. I okay. fell in love with community. So I came across the bridge, settled in the Bronx, and went to the Visiting Nurse Service of New York. I stayed at a Visiting Nurse Service in New York for 10 years and moved through the ranks up to a supervisor position and then district director. During that period of time, I knew that one needed credentialing. And the supervisor on the, um, in the office where I was an assistant supervisor picked up the phone one day and called Dr. Martha Rogers at NYU and said, I have somebody who needs to be in your program. And Dr. Martha Rogers said, because I could walk from my office to NYU. She said, send her over. And that was it. I got into NYU. I mean, oh, I, wow. you know, I, I made it into NYU. I, I had a wonderful um really good education, some really good, good folks at NYU um, that uh, became, you know, um, that I've always respected them for their knowledge and skills. And so at NYU, um, after I got my, my master's degree, I went back to the Bronx to run an office and then later on got promoted, um, you know, to another office. But in that period of time, there was this woman called Dr. Claire Fagan who heard me speak uh, on behalf, I was speaking on behalf of visiting nurse service at a meeting and she never let up from that day. She kept saying, you need to come in to academia. You need to come into academia. And I kept saying, you don't pay enough money. You don't pay enough money. 
said, I'll make it work your while. I'll make it work your while. And so I ended up at Lehman in 1975, first as an adjunct, because I taught the community health content as an adjunct. Um, and then I, they, she kept saying, you got to come full-time. And I became a full-time faculty in 1975. Wow. And I only had a master's. I, I didn't have a, um, a doctorate. And I've been there ever since. And again, in that period of time, I've done a whole lot of things at, at uh, Lehman, you know, you know taking charge of some programs. I was not in charge of the program, but, in, you know, as program director for some, some initiatives. And then I knew I needed the credentialing. I know I needed it because I would not. First of all, I'm a woman of color. They don't give me nothing unless I have all the, the, the credentials. So I knew I wasn't going to NYU or um, Columbia because I knew everybody there. So I thought, I, let me get out of town. I went to the University of Vermont. Why? The coldest place, the whitest place <laughs> in, the, in the nation and the coldest place. It was a heck of an experience. It was a wonderful experience. They're also very liberal. So nobody, I mean, they treated me like I belong there. Wow. And um, I, of course, when I got there, I found people that I had known from NYU, didn't know that I had known them and people who knew other people. You can't run away, you, you yeah. folks. You can't run away house. from me. And, and so I got my doctorate in educational leadership and policy studies. And so that was, that was what I wanted to do. And, um, and so from, from there, I, um, I've, Went back to Lehman. I became an well an assistant. I took took a year off sabbatical, new coursework, and it, then it took me a few years to finish up all the other stuff. And, and I went back to Lehman, and of course, once I got the doctorate, became an assistant prof, and then moved rapidly through the ranks. To within five years, I was a full tenured professor. Oh wow, that's amazing! And so, what is your current position at Lehman? What's your title? Right now, I'm professor and chairperson of the Department of Nursing. Um, in, in, in the CUNY system, the chair people, chairpersons are the executive in charge of their department. It's only uh, departments that can hire, fire, tenure, and promote folks. So that happens within our department, in our personnel and budget committees, and it happens in the college-wide um, with all the chairs being the ones who vote. Uh, it's different than across the country where they're in deanships, the deans control everything, not in CUNY. Okay. You know, the chairs are the powerhouses. Mm -hmm. Did you imagine when you were starting your college career that you would be in the position that you're in right now, the chairperson at Lehman, um, and having had just all the experiences in between? Well, I know the nuns didn't think I would. <laughs> Because I know I was a rebel. I, you know, I, I think, I know I did not imagine myself here, but I knew I would be something because my parents and my family constellation was so strong. They knew that any of us could do anything we wanted if we had the right resources and the motivation. So I, uh, like I told somebody, yeah, maybe I knew I, um, I would get someplace, but I knew I wouldn't be the president of the United States of America, so I chose to be uh, the national volunteer president of AARP, which has 38 <laughs> million members. You know, that's a whole, that's a oh. whole other thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a big and, network uh, there. Right. And to be involved in professional organizations, because I saw my parents, my, my mom and my dad always were community 
um, service people. They had my dad was a Boy Scout leader. He was even a Boy Scout leader for a former Cardinal by the name of Bernie Law. Cardinal Law, who came from Boston. My dad was his Boy Scout leader. So, you know, so that's the kind of, so I said, oh, we can do it. And they didn't have the kind of education that we had, but they saw that service was important to them. And so I think we, we all in our family, um, you know, did that. I mean, I got my family are high achievers. I'm like more like the lowest achiever in the, in the bunch. The rest of them are, are you know, very high achievers. So, <laughs> um, you know, it's so it wasn't that we co- we've never competed against each other. We just moved along at our own pace. That's beautiful. And a few years ago, um, your relationship with Seton Hall was rekindled. Since then, you've become a very active alumna. So what type of place does Seton Hall have in your life and, and why? Well, I, 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 again, I was talking to my friend, uh, uh, Dr. Brenda Bennett, up to last night after we had that prior interview. And I said to her, I said, Brenda, we have friendships that started in 1961. Here we were, two Black women in the North, in New Jersey, in one of the worst times in, in, in history of the United States and the lack of civil rights and inequities that existed. Wow. Yet these folks who are my friends to this day, you know, um, Anne McBride Alcus, Bobby Walsh Kiernan, Pat Sayers Guarino, Marianne Whitman, Marianne Riley Kelly, Judy Amenti, Roseanne Amenti Conway. Um, some of them we have, th- those are the ones, Eileen Donnelly, you know, who, who all are those classmates who remained when we saw each other, it was like, oh, we just started a conversation that we seem to have had yesterday, but it may have been 20 years ago. But there was <laughs> still that bond that, that continued to be, you know, such a part of, of who we were and what we, we did. And I think one of the things that really was that our 25th anniversary that really brought us in together, um, you know, that we begun to really rekindle relationships and decided to, to at least stay in touch. And we've stayed in touch. Women, oh, and Marianne, um, the Palmer Scolavino, uh, Marianne and then later on, meet see, seeing her son, who's now at Seton Hall, Robert. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah. That was my classmate's son. He's now a professor in nursing at Lehman. Isn't that a great legacy? And really getting in, in, in you know, and, and having relationships with, with these women. These are women who knew of social injustices, knew about what was not right and not acceptable. They had integrity. They still do. Their families embraced us. The Bronhoffers, Dr. Bronhoffer and his wife, Barbara Bronhoffer's parents, they sent us sour broughton. <laughs> we loved it, you know, but <laughs> they embraced us. They, 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 Amentis, uh, Amentis embraced us. The De Palmas, Mrs. McBride, uh, Mayor Riley, Mary Ann Kelly's father was a former mayor, was a mayor of Orange, New Jersey. These folks embraced us and treated us like family. I stayed with the Sayers, uh, Captain Sayers and his wife. He was the captain of the police force in Jersey City and stayed at their house when until we could find a place. My friend Brenda, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Bennett, I, it, it was as they, they would do anything and her 
aunts and her grandfather. I mean, it became such a, a network that over time, you know, it may spread, but it never broke. Wow. It never broke. That really speaks to just the power of community and of relationship building. And, and I love that, that you mentioned picking up right where you left off, even if it's been 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so truly important. With that in mind, and you're truly a wealth of knowledge, what advice or words of wisdom do you have for the current Seton Hall students? I would say to Seton Hall students currently, build friendships, build friendships, form a network, utilize all the resources you have within Seton Hall. You, there are much more resources now than we had when we were students, but we utilize everything we had. Um, <laughs> and so they, and, and utilize each other. I mean, we had study groups. We used to study together, cry together, laugh together. Got robbed, all our stuff got robbed out of a cot together one day when we went to the clinic. You know, but, but <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I'm talking about, you know, a camaraderie that that if you don't start it, you're not going to be able to do it or understand the, the power of relationships later on in your life. And relationships are exactly what they are. It doesn't mean that you have to every day talk to the same person, although I talk to Brenda Bennett every day now, you know, but it's. That, but you, you, you have to understand what it does to you as a person and how it builds, continues to build who you are and build your confidence because you, you feed off each other and you share. You share the grief, you share the happiness. And, um, and, and it's important because, listen, getting through the College of Nursing at Seton Hall ain't easy. I know. <laughs> it wasn't easy then. It wasn't easy 50-some years ago. I know it's not easy now. So, so, so trying to, to, you know, use that, but friendships and building a network um, are critical factors, critical, critical in success, in success and finding mentors, mentors, you can find them within the faculty, you can find them outside in professional groups and connections, you know, my mentors, you know, are the ones who pushed me, pushed me, pushed me to do a lot of things. Um, you know, so that that was critical. People like Dr. Gloria Smith, Dr. Carnegie, you know, um, Dr. Rita Duman, these are power brokers. These are women who hold top positions in this country. Only one alive still now is Dr. Betty Smith. But those were people who push, 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 push and say, you can do it. You can do it. That's the kind of uh, 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 networks that one has to build. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It definitely sounds like it was a very powerful tool for you. And so, again, we started off this conversation with recognizing that you are the 2020 Most Distinguished Alumna. Any words you'd like to share about receiving that recognition? And we very much look forward to celebrating in person with you when we can. I am still in awe. <laughs> and I'm humbled. I, 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 I didn't do this. I didn't. My life, my career, my service has not been to get awards, but to do what I, I knew I needed to be doing as a person and my contribution. So I am so honored, so um, at times overwhelmed when I keep saying it, you know, oh, I'm, I'm getting the Distinguished Alumni Award. It overwhelms me, but I really appreciate, and I know my classmates, you know, uh, who nominated me. I mean, 
what more can you ask for from a bunch of, of women who are strong, strong leaders in each and every way? And and so I, I appreciate it. I, I appreciate their, their trust in me, their belief in me. And I will never, ever take for granted the friendship that developed. So getting this award just cemented in my estimation of my life what a wonderful bunch of folks I met in 1961 and can still call my friends today. That's beautiful. And you are very much deserving of the award. Congratulations. Thank you so much for all of your service, all that you do for the community in your career and for the Seton Hall community. It is very much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Georges is one of more than 100,000 alumni who exemplify what great minds can do with a Seton Hall education. If you know of a fellow pirate that we should have our eye on, don't hesitate to email us at alumni at shu.edu. Also, make sure you stay up to date with all of the virtual engagement opportunities being offered by the Alumni Engagement and Philanthropy Department. We're making sure that during this time of social distancing, alumni near and far still have ways to enhance their relationship with Seton Hall. Share the news of this podcast with your friends and follow at Seton Hall Alumni on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Hope you join us for the next episode of the Seton Hall Pirate's Eye podcast. Mm-hmm.